0: picking out those songs, you know. Um, my message this morning is, uh, Todd asked me, he goes, what's the, what's the title of your message? And the title of my message is Legacy. And I can't help but think of the great cloud of witnesses, as the word would say, of all of those that were here when Mike and I first started coming here, who have now went on to the Lord, who were singing those songs. Every day, worshiping and glorifying God. Uh, so that was a great time of worship. And worship puts our minds and our hearts in the right order in order to receive His Word. Please turn with me to the book of Colossians. Now there's two, actually there's going to be three segments of Scripture that, um, it, that my sermon's going to touch on. Uh, the first is going to be in chapter 1. Um, verse 7, and then in chapter 4, verse 12. So if you want to just kind of keep those pages like that. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you already for this praise and worship time, Father, as we draw closer and press into you. May your Holy Spirit move in this place and minister to each and every one of our hearts. Father, may the words be spoke here this morning from your word, Father, be words that, Father, would glorify you, edify the church, and build up each and every saint that's here today. Father, use me as a vessel to communicate your word. And Father, may it it run true in our hearts and in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. You know, within the Bible, we have significant characters who have left a lasting legacy for us to read, for us to study, for us to emulate. People like Abraham, you remember Abraham, the father of nations. Moses, the deliverer of God's people and the author of the first five books of the Bible. Joshua, who took God's people and led them into the promised land. Then there was Samuel, the last, greatest judge, who ushered in the monarchy, which is being covered, has been being covered by Ron's class. Then there's Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, who chose to follow Naomi's God, our God, and would not return to her people, and married Boaz and became the great-grandmother of the greatest king, King David. And we know King David. He was a man after God's own heart. Then there was a son, Solomon, who may have been the wisest man ever to live and provided us the wisdom literature of Proverbs and other literature. Then there's Isaiah, who foretold of the great birth of the coming king and also the great sacrifice that he would make for you and me. There's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who continued to prophesy to a nation who continued to ignore it all the way up to the exile. But he never stopped. Always faithful, always moving forward. Daniel, remember him? A faithful man, a praying man of God, even in the face of death. Within the New Testament, we have Peter, a fisherman, turned disciple, turned to an apostle, turned to a preacher and a missionary of the gospel. Matthew, the tax collector, who left it all to follow Jesus. Mary Magdalene, the woman in whom Jesus casted out seven demons, never left his side. All through his ministry, his trial, his crucifixion, and was the one that went to the disciples and told them he is risen. And who could forget Paul, who was Saul, a Pharisee, also turned disciple and apostle and gave us the great theology of the New Testament. Then there was Luke. Remember him? The physician who wrote the Gospel of Luke but also wrote the book of Acts and was a great historian. Then there's James, the brother of Jesus, who was the first leader of the church and remained there until his violent death in A.D. 62, continuing to minister on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, none of those people were perfect, but they left us a lasting legacy for us to emulate as it relates to godliness and righteousness. Righteousness. As significant as these people are, there are legacies every once in a while that we come across in the Word of God that are only represented in a few short verses, But we're introduced to a person, and yet their legacy is equal to or even greater than the legacies that I just mentioned. This morning, I would like to share with you one of those men and one of those legacies. Although his name was only mentioned briefly in Scripture, his legacy Just within a few verses is one we should not only take note of, but be inspired by and to emulate. The person I'm speaking of is Epaphras. Epaphras. And we first see him in in chapter 1, verse 7. Epaphras was from Colossae and was a Gentile believer and not a Jew. It is believed that Epaphras came to Christ through Paul's ministry in Ephesus, over a hundred miles away. We do not know the age of Epaphras. We do not know what his occupation was. We don't know his educational level or his family, whether he was married, had children, because Scripture doesn't mention But what Scripture does mention is his legacy of his godliness and service to Christ. And we can see that on display in just a few verses. The first thing that we notice about Epaphras is that he was a missionary. He was a missionary. You know, after hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ by Paul in Ephesus, he returned to Colossae. And many would agree that he planted the church in Colossae for which this letter of Colossians is written to. Additionally, we read in chapter 4 of Paul's letter in verse 13, Epaphras went to share the word in, all, in neighboring locations such as Laodicea and Hierapolis. I hope I'm saying that right. Which are just a few miles away, 12 miles apart. At the very heart of Epaphras was a desire to share the good news of Jesus Christ with all of those around Him. You've heard me say that we are all missionaries. You've heard me say that before in teachings and in preachings. And although we're not trained in language or culture and sent to a faraway land, we are still called to be missionaries in the areas of our influence, in our homes, in our employments in our neighborhoods, where we contact with people. Epaphras did not only simply return to Colossae and live out his life pondering the things that Paul said, no, he went back to Colossae and he began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without formal training, he shared his heart. He shared what he heard. He shared the life that was spoke into him by the words of And as a result, in that Lycus Valley, which is in modern-day Turkey, the Church of Colossae, the Church of Laodicea, and Heropolis were all established by one man's ministry. As much as he was a a missionary, he was also a faithful minister of the gospel. As I stated, we don't know what Epaphras did for a living. We don't know if he was a carpenter. We don't know if he was a trader of goods. We don't know if he was a laborer. But what we do know is he was a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only did he minister to the people in Colossae, in Laodicea, in Heropolis, but he also ministered to Paul while Paul was in prison. And that is why Paul says the term, my beloved servant, in chapter 1. Now, Paul only used that term with one other person, Timothy, whom he loved very dearly and mentored. And so it highlights what kind of person Epaphras was and how valuable he was to the ministry of the gospel and how he ministered to Paul. When we look upon the early church leaders, do you notice that employment or what they did for a living is either briefly mentioned totally forsaken, like Matthew, or, mentioned or not mentioned at all as to what they do. We know that Matthew was a tax collector. We know that Luke was a physician. We know that Peter was a fisherman. And we knew Paul was a tent maker. All of these were but brief descriptions concerning their employment, except for Peter, it was elaborated on for points of emphasis and teachings by Jesus. Now, one could say, well, given the letters, Tim, in which they're written about, it's really not that important for them to even mention what their occupation was because the purpose of the letters and the purpose of the Gospels was to promote Christ. And I would say that you could have a very good argument there. Or maybe, just maybe, the writers of the letters, the writers of Gospel, put what they did for a living as a secondary element to who they are in Christ. It's not... What we become, it's whom we become and whom we are in that matters the most. Now, the Word of God consistently states that we are to be productive. We are to work with our hands, not be a burden, not be slothful. But it also says that our lives is not what we are or what we become or the accomplishments. In the Air Force, we have I love me walls, where all of your accomplishments are up on the board, up on the wall. Plaques, awards, promotions, certificates. I used to have a lie, love me wall until I was given a picture of Jesus holding a man who is slumped in the arms of Jesus. And the man is holding a hammer and a nail. And Jesus is holding him. When I got that picture, that was the only picture I put on my wall. Because that's what it's all about. Not what I've accomplished in this world. You know, I have a good friend named Ted Beasley. He's a fellow worker with me. He lives out in Minneapolis. And we were talking on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and he told me this, and it was profound the way he put it, and I hope I capture it right. He says that our lives are to be soulfully dedicated to the Lord and that we are to fit the remainder of our lives within the available spaces left over versus fitting Christ into the available spaces of our lives. I believe this is the life of a Epaphras led and that he was a minister. He was sold out for Jesus and the majority of his time ministering to the church and ministering to Paul. You know I'm reminded of scripture that Paul wrote to young Timothy and, and and if you turn your bibles to Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, you'll see it in verses 12 through 16. And I'll read it for you. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy. He wrote, "Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct and in love, and in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to the exhortation, to teaching." Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by a prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, I kind of read that fast, and I apologize if I did, but... And although that was written to Timothy, it's also prescriptive for us as well in the day in which we live, in our ministry. We are to be a proper example, not only to our families, to our friends, but to the world. If the world ever comes up and says, I didn't know you were a Christian, there's something wrong. We are to devote ourselves to the reading and the study of Scriptures, which increases our faith, and later I'm going to talk about how it increases our confidence in Him. We're not to neglect our gifts. God has uniquely given you a gift for you to minister and to have purpose in Him. I pray everybody I'm looking at this morning signs up and is here next Saturday for gift testing. Do you not want to know what the Lord has put in you that needs to come out for the sake of His ministry? I'm excited. I want to see what gifts are out there. Because when we're operating on our gifts, we're operating in purpose, but we're all operating within the body of Christ. You might be a little finger, you might be a thumb, you might be some fingers in the middle. But together, it's one, serving the Lord. But we also need to do it to progress, to be an effective witness. If you do, people will notice. They will notice your growth your maturity. And they will want what you have. The world is looking for peace. The world is looking for purpose. That's what I was looking for. And when I seen it in Christians, I want that. I don't know what it is. But I want that. And praise be to God. He wooed me in my heart to His presence, and He gave me that. But not only was Epaphras a missionary, not only was Epaphras a minister, but Epaphras had godly character. Again in chapter 1, we see Epaphras provides Paul with a good report of the church and their love in the Spirit. Although it was believed Epaphras brought the news of false teachings, which resulted in the letter to the Colossians by Paul, but his his comments were of favorable comments of the church, and their love for the Spirit. In fact, one writer wrote, He extolled their virtues and kept silent their shortcomings. It is of my belief that there are three great sins that the church can fall into. Indifference to the community in which they reside. Apathy as it relates to their sanctification and maturity in Christ. And criticism within its ranks. As it relates to Epaphras, he was one of a man of concern, not a man of criticism. And there's a difference. Criticism derives from a critical spirit that is not loving, but is based in either hatred, pride, or jealousy. Having a concern, on the other hand, is based in a genuine care for another person, and it's usually based in love. Now, sure, people can play semantics with these words, but at the heart of it is the heart. A genuine care for another person will be expressed in a concern rather than in a criticism. And we see here, that is what Epaphras shows. He shows a concern and a love and a genuine caring for the church in Colossae. And he shows that to Paul. And Paul addresses it within the false teachings of the church. You see, godly character is revealed by how one speaks of others, whether they are friends, Or foes. Epaphras extolling the virtue of the church versus criticism shows godly character. And it reminds us of what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fit the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So we see that he was a missionary. We see that he was a minister. We see that he had godly character who had a deep concern for the church. But it's probably his greatest attribute was that he was a man of prayer. He's a man of prayer. And we see that in chapter 4, verse 12. In fact, he was a fervent man of prayer. In fact, this morning when we were praying, Mike said... uh, Lord, as Tim struggled through the word of God, you know, that, that, that English word seems like you're, you're, you're working against the grind, you're working against the hill. It's, it's like you're not getting it, right? But the biblical term of struggle means that you're dedicating to yourself to understand something. You're dedicating your whole body to it. And what we see here in the ESV is that Epaphras was struggling in prayer on the behalf of the church of Colossae. And that word struggling means to endeavor strenuously with zeal and strife. Within the CMA's core values, prayer is preeminent. Prayer is the primary work of the saint. The spiritual life and vitality and faith of a believer is a direct reflection of their prayer life. If it is strong, the faith and character is strong. When it is weak, the faith and the character is weak. A cursory prayer life will not bring the intimacy needed in a healthy relationship with the Father. Think of it in relational terms. Prayer is the most intimate relationship activity you can have with God. If you do not speak to your spouse or your good friend or your children, if you give the same amount of time that you do in prayer, how well will that relationship be? I pray it would be strong. But if you only talk to your wife or your friend or your children for 20 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, How strong would that relationship be? Now, praise be to God, we're under the grace of God, and God loves us with an everlasting love, and He is patient. But He so desires intimacy with you in prayer. And we need to dedicate ourselves to that. Within the New Testament, words such as striving, laboring, fervently, effectual, and agony describe prayer. And the reason for this, and why prayer is a hard work, and one to be labored in, is because it's not of the natural man to pray. Maybe in a foxhole. It is of the Spirit. And the Spirit wars against the flesh, and the flesh wars against the Spirit. There's that conflict that exists within us. Each vying for its time. Additionally, Prayer takes discipline because what stands in our way of prayer, guess what, is you. We want to do what we want to do. We want to think what we want to think. Do we have time to give up 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes? One of my favorite shows on TV or I want to go out and do this or I want to go out and do that. We are our biggest obstacle. And the whole time, the Holy Spirit is saying, please, come unto me. That conviction that you should pray, that's the Holy Spirit saying, come here. I want to talk with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to nurture our relationship. And we need to respond to that conviction. Remember, prayers of a righteous man has great power and is always working, always working. Now, this is how Epaphras prayed in verse 4. And it's important that we understand the dynamics of his prayer for the church in Colossae. Because it could easily be a prayer for this church and other churches here in town. Epaphras prayed for those in the church as if they were his own children, and he was interceding on their behalf. It wasn't just mere acquaintances. These were people that he invested his heart and his love in. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. I've always said the church is my closest family. I'm closer with you than I am my own biological family. It's not because I don't like my biological family. They're fine. They're great people. But it's in here where my spirit bears witness with Mike's spirit. My spirit bears witness with Ron's spirit. My spirit bears witness with, with Ken's spirit and Jody's and everybody else. That's only of God. And that's the gift He's given the church. Separate of the church, separate of our faith in Christ, would we even know each other? Maybe. But praise be to God we come here. We're family. And when you hurt, I hurt. I heard last week that Mike prayed not only for Doug's back, but for future healing of my back. That's family. (laughs) I was like, I was at home going, what was that? And it was God working. Let's see if I can get back on track here. The first thing he prays for is that they would stand. Stand. And to stand means to have a steadfast mind. One that is confident in what they are believing and unwilling to be moved by false teaching or those attempting to cause doubt. That's what the enemy loves to do. Through people and also through the Spirit. Confidence in the Christian character is a trait we tend to pass over. When someone is confident in Christ, it gives them courage to face the various challenges and trials that life produces. You know, when I served in the military, and I finally became a flight chief where I led 45 men and women, which is really the... the if you're a cop, that's other than making cheap, that's, that's what you want. You want your own flight so you can do it your own way. Right? And one of the chief lessons I learned is morale of the troops was not always based upon the choices of posts or promotions in rank or even the preferred assignments. I had people go to Germany where everybody wanted to go, call me back and said, I miss on Because the grass is not always greener on the other side. What I learned about morale during this time is when my troops were well-trained, well-equipped, and well-led, their morale was high. And if any one of those things were absent, morale took a hit. I find this to be the same for Christians as well. When one is well-trained, well-equipped, and well-led, they are confident in their faith. By well-trained, I mean being discipled, growing in the knowledge and the wisdom and the understanding of God's Word, as taught by the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, but also by gifted teachers that we have right here in this church. Well-equipped with God's Word, God's will, and God's gifts, which leads a person to their purpose in Him for their lives. And finally, being led by the Holy Spirit in all that they do, who is actually accomplishing the work of sanctification and said, He will finish it. But we're also led by Christ-exemplifying men and women who mentor, who guide, who pray, who lift up, And share your burdens. That's an Acts 2.42 church. When we are confident in Christ and in God's will, we live lives on purpose, always being able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. He also prayed that they would stand in maturity. The reason Epaphras prayed this is because false teachings were entering into the church that centered around Jewish legalism. Greek philosophy and oriental mysticism. Epaphras prayed for maturity because he knew a church that was not mature in their faith was susceptible to false teachings. Paul himself wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 once again where he stressed that they are not to be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine that's teachings. You see, false teachings takes advantage of people's lack of knowledge, understanding, application of biblical truths, because in every false teaching, there's just a little bit of truth taken out of context, making it attractive. False teaching also derived from an agnostic approach, which is one of knowledge versus one of faith. They also tend to be legalistic approach or a legalistic environment, which brings about a merit-based faith versus one based upon the grace of God. Where religion holds more weight than relationship. I have seen false teachings come into the church. And it seems at times church is so concerned with keeping members that they compromise themselves to do so. And then one day it's too late. And now there's a division in the church because of false doctrine. The church in Colossae was obviously not as mature as Epaphras desired it to be and was concerned about false teachings entering into the church and disrupting the unity and its spiritual integrity. This was Epaphras' concern for Colossae. This is why he prayed for maturity. This is why we need to pray. For maturity. Now, I'm not saying we're an immature church, but we're all growing up. We're all maturing. We're all at different various levels of maturity. You never stop learning. You never stop growing. And if you're seasoned in the maturity of Christ, it's your call and ministry to help and lift up those who have just started. To be a proper example, to mentor them, to teach them, to lead them, and to show them the right way. Finally, preface prays for the church of Colosse to be assured in the will of God. When Paul writes to be fully assured, it means to be fully convinced, having little doubt about something. When someone or somebody is not fully convinced of something, they are unsure and when they have doubts, they can be easily swayed by false doctrines. That is right what Paul wrote in Titus. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's not always easy. That's not always fun. Nobody likes confrontation but it's necessary to keep spiritual unity and integrity. Now notice that Paul says, in all the will of God. This means the full will of God in all things. In other words, Epaphras' prayer was for the church at Colossae to live their lives in the fullness of God's, well convinced and confident in His word and doctrine, and to have no doubts about what Christ did for them and the grace that was upon them. I have a friend Eric. Eric Burdick, he's a pastor over at Northland Harvest Church. and I first met him at Doug and Jen's New Year's Eve party. Um, that's before they got out of hand and cops were coming, but no, that never <laughs> happened. But I first met him at Doug and Jen's, and immediately we had a connection. Immediately, we were kindred spirits. We actually closed, what's that, what's that restaurant over there by Walmart that's now closed at? It, what was it? The Village Inn. We actually was asked to leave. And we said, why? Because we're closing 30 minutes ago. <laughs> and we went outside and spoke for another 30 minutes. So anyway, we're kindred spirits. And I remember the first night that I met him, he told the story about how they were called to mine up. They were stationed in Germany in 2010. And he was in prayer with his wife, Darice. And, and I always, mm, me, taking stab at names can always get me in trouble. But thank you, Lord, Darice. And they were praying. They said, Lord's leading us to Minot. Right? Now you know that's when God's talking, when he tells you to go to Minot. But he says, you're going to Minot. Okay, going to Minot. So, on the available list of uh, bases that he could choose from, he chose Minot. Then spring came, 2011. Some of you might remember that. Uh, some of you might have had a house flooded minorly or some. <laughs> Todd's like, mm. Doris. But the flood hit. And so they said, You're not going to Minot. He goes, Oh, no, we're going to Minot. No, there's a flood there. Nobody's going to Minot. We're terminating all orders to go into Minot no, we're going to Mina, And so he had orders to Mina, And his orderly room said, hey, turn those orders in because you've got to get another one, select another location. He goes, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to Mina." His commander said, dude, you, you've got to pick another place. We've got to get ready to send you out. Your time is expand- you know, ending here. You got No, we're going to Mina." The general of USafe offered him a job on the staff that was a very good, promotable job for the next rank. And he said, respectfully, sir, I gotta decline because I'm going to Minot. At some point, he was gonna to go to mental health. <laughs> TMO called up and said, hey, we need to know where you're going so we can start preparing your shipping and taking your, whole, your, your household goods and ship them to your next place. He goes, here's my orders. He goes, no, we're not sending anything to Minot. He goes, those orders aren't canceled. We're going to Minot. TMO says, we can't ship it. We're going to Minot. If my orders are not canceled, you shipping it to Minot. They came to Minot. They said, there's no houses. There's nowhere for you to live. Everything's flooded. Eric went over to the housing office, got two sets of keys for a new house. They were going to Minot. And in that time that he was telling that story, I was so amazed on how confident he was that what God showed him, no matter what he faced, no matter the odds that he faced, and the people telling him it ain't going to happen, he said, we're going to mine. Because that's what God said. He was never dissuaded. Fully convinced in all the will of God. And so he came here. And he worked with Doug for a period of time. Then Doug got rid of him. No, he didn't. And he responded to the call of ministry and is now the pastor of Northland Harvest Church. That's confidence in the call. And that's what Epaphras was praying for, for the church of Colossae, to be so convinced of the will of God, to have no doubts about where he was leading them. No doubts about his grace upon them. No doubts about his calling upon them. So convinced. Can we be like that? Can we be like that? So, as much as though he was a missionary, he was a minister, he was a godly man with godly character, and he was a prayer warrior, he was also a prisoner. We find that in Philemon, verse 23. In Philemon, it shows a legacy of the true cost of his faith. And that he was imprisoned with Paul for his ministry, for preaching the gospel, and for his beliefs. As with Paul, Epaphras' imprisonment shows the unwavering conviction that motivated him to continue to minister regardless of the consequences he faced. Ministering the gospel was more important than his freedom. More important than his reputation, in the world. Being mistreated and stripped of his standing in society, was of no value compared to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In fact, Epaphras truly embraced what the Lord said in Luke. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Epaphras did just that. He forsook all of that. And as tradition tells us, he ultimately paid the ultimate price when he was martyred for Christ. That's a legacy. And just within a few verses, we get a glimpse of a man who left us a lasting legacy. Epaphras was a missionary who carried the message of the good news of Jesus Christ to his hometown started the church. He was a minister who worked hard for the church, worked hard for the kingdom, made it a priority in his life. He was a fervent man of prayer, struggling always on behalf of those that God had entrusted him with. And he was a prisoner, forsaking his reputation in the world and ultimately his life for the gospel message. I believe there's no happenstance in the Bible. It's an inerrant word of God. And when something is in the word of God, it's there for a reason. Epaphras' legacy is there for a reason. It's an example for us. A normal citizen, normal guy. No real formal training. But he stepped out in faith, shared the good news, ministered, prayed fervently, and gave it all for the church. So what about your legacy? You ever think about that? When God calls you home, What would you leave as a legacy? Will it be defined by the things of the world? Or will it be defined by your life in Christ? Within a few minutes, we're going to be celebrating the greatest, perfect, and preeminent legacy we have ever received, the legacy of Jesus Christ. Not only has Jesus given us his legacy to follow and emulate by way of his word, but we have also been given an inheritance through the new covenant by way of his shed blood. A legacy that redeems. A legacy that forgives. A legacy that empowers and a legacy that is eternal and filled with hope. We celebrate this legacy each month by observing the Lord's table. So as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's legacy through the new covenant, let us now pray that the Lord would move us to live a life of legacy that is worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Father, we desire to be used by you. Father, help us to respond to you in every way in which you lead us in the ministry of this gospel so precious that you've given us by your shed blood. Father, use us as empty vessels for your glory, for your purpose, for your vision, for your mission. And as we celebrate the Lord's table, Lord, would you please remind us of the greatest legacy that we ever have And that is of your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. If we can have the communion stewards come forth.